You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Shared a message here in September, so if you were here in September, you might recognize me. My name is John Olive, and I am not a professional theologian, but I'm a very passionate one. I've spent uh, 20 years in... uh, a ministry mostly to people in recovery and to people in the criminal justice system where I worked. I'm a retired U.S. probation officer. I've been retired seven years and uh, I'm more involved in ministry now than I have ever been and that seems to be increasing. Um, but anyway, that is um, just a little bit about my background. Um, what I want to talk about today is faith and works and how they intersect. A lot of people think that there's some type of of tension or irreconcilable notions between Pauline doctrine and and James's doctrine about faith and works. And I think, I hope, uh, that the Lord will be able to clear that up for us today. But I, um, it was a trap that I fell into of, of getting confused about faith and works as a young man. And um, I think a lot of Christians struggle with it. It was um, uh, something that, uh, that I personally struggled with at age 20. And a lot of what I teach about and preach about have to do with my own personal mistakes and character defects that that God has uh, graciously allowed me to overcome. And I, I feel like that's where my gift is, is to use those things that the Lord has delivered me from and, and uh, help others understand that. I figure I'm probably not unique <laughs> in that regard. So as a, as a young man, uh, when I, I came to Christ, well, I grew up in a nominal Baptist home, and, and, uh, but I, I really became a converted Christian at age 19. And before and after, you know, living in Texas and going to Baptist churches, heard a lot of sermons about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And so I want to kind of start there and, uh, and lay that, that framework. So should be on the screen. Yes, it is. And uh, so, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it's, that sounds pretty clear and simple, and it really is just that clear and that simple. Works do not save us. However, when I heard all these sermons about, about salvation by, by grace through faith, uh, I, I never recall anybody ever actually going on to the next verse, which is verse 10. And so if we're going to understand Scripture, what's one of the most important things we need to, to consider? Context. Yes, that's exactly right. So this is the next verse after Ephesians 8 and 9. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Huh. How come nobody ever taught me that? Isn't that interesting? Now, before I talk about good works, though, we've got to spend just a little bit of time talking about the word there for workmanship. It is 
poema. We are God's poema. We are his poem. We are, every day when we go out in this community, we are God's poem to a lost and dying world. Uh, to take, he, take, he took our brokenness, and he turns us into these restored, uh, lovely beings that get to interact with people in this world. And every day we share God's, God's poem, his heart, right with broken people everywhere we go. And I, I, that's too good to pass up. It's not part of my sermon, really, but it's something I just could not uh, resist sharing with you. I think that's so exciting to see the heart of God, of how he looks at us and what our mission is in this world. We are his poem. All right, so back to, back to works. Now, um, we are saved by grace through faith so that we can do the good works that God prepared for us to do before we were even born, before the world even existed. He had these things for us to do, and that is why he saved us. He saved us to do things, saved to do. Not because doing saves us, but because real salvation produces action. Now, if you're, if you're going to talk about faith and works, what, uh, what passage in Scripture first comes to mind, or what comes to mind pretty quickly? What's that? Okay, Ephesians, and what else? James. Yeah, James. So we're going to look at James next. And James, this passage is a, is a rather long passage, so bear with me. Uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, James is not telling us that works and faith are contradictory. Rather, he is pointing out that works complement faith. And I don't mean works are applauding faith. I mean they are completing faith. They are making faith real and whole. 
they flow from faith. Now, we can, we can, see, we can see evidence that Abraham believed God. Now, because he was willing to act upon the promise that God told him that he would have offspring through Isaac and concluded that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead to fulfill the promise. So let's set the stage here. Abraham has this promise from God that he's going to have descendants through Isaac. Okay? That's what he knows. And then one day, God tells him, Oh, by the way, I need you to journey over to Mount Moriah and um, sacrifice Isaac there as a burnt offering. Now, Abraham has what seems like a contradictory message here. He's like, okay, I'm supposed to have offspring through Isaac, but I'm also supposed to sacrifice Isaac. So how is that going to work? Now, maybe he considered at some point, and he probably did, God, would God lie to me? Would God tell me something that wasn't true? Would he deceive me about what his plans were for, through Isaac? And he quickly rejected that. It's like, no, God doesn't lie. He told me the truth. And so what was his conclusion? His conclusion was that, well, the, way that, the only way I can see that these things are going to be reconciled is that I sacrifice Isaac, and then God raises him from the dead so that he can have the children that I'm promised to have through him. Now, as preposterous as that sounds, that is precisely what Abraham concluded. And how do I know that? Well, because I'm, we're told that in Hebrews chapter 11. This is not in your notes, but just listen to this. By faith, Abraham, uh, this is uh, Hebrews 11:17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered, this is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now, I wish we had time to go into the depths of Genesis chapter 22 today, but maybe that'll be another sermon down the line somewhere. But, uh, uh, but just imagine, we see that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he believed what God said. He wasn't going to hide him. He was going to sacrifice him because he knew God would raise him up and he was going to fulfill his promise in a way that no one had ever seen happen before. That, so we, so we see, did Abraham believe God? Yes, he did. How do we know that? Because of what he did. He was willing to sacrifice Isaac. The works flowed from the faith and that made the, the faith legitimate and real. And we see evidence of it from what Abraham did. Now, uh, good works is a very popular subject in the New Testament. There, it's discussed in many, many letters. Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. You can find references in others. But perhaps nowhere do we see such enthusiasm for good works as we do in Paul's letter to Titus. 
And so I want to look at um, a couple of passages in Titus, which will be on the screen. The first of those is Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. Well, you could just stop right there and do a whole sermon on that one phrase. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager or zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No, no one is to disregard you. So the, the purpose of, of why Jesus comes is to redeem us from lawless deeds, that's evil acts or bad deeds, and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. You can see the difference in behavior. I take this, this person who is, is following the desires of Satan, I convert him, I put my spirit in him, and I make him eager to do what I would do and what I want to do through him. The word there is zelotes. So that's where we get our word zealous. Now what does zealous mean? Well, it means to be devoted to, to be passionate about, a zealot. We are to be a, you know, when we think about Simon the zealot, you know, and maybe you've seen The Chosen or something and kind of get a feel for what, what it is to be a zealot. God wants us to be a zealot for good deeds. It's like, wow, why is that so important? Ah, we'll get there. Now, let's look at Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This statement is trustworthy, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and beneficial for people. Okay, so again, Paul emphasizes this idea that the reason that God has saved us is so that we can engage in good deeds in this world. If we are New Testament Christians, we are to be engaged in good deeds, even though those good deeds do not save us. So, um, good works. What are good works? Somebody give me an example of a good work. Uh, speak up. Taking care of widows. Yep, taking care of widows and orphans is actually straight out of Scripture. Um, what else? Pardon me? There you go, volunteering in a shelter. All right, so we get a little flavor of, of what some of the ideas are. But it, uh, the, the Greek words are kalos ergon, which means simply a morally good action. It is uh, an action that is good for people. This would include anything from healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, spreading the message of the gospel, to helping a child cross the street, 
or helping an older person change a light bulb, and I'm probably going to be in that category, you know, in a few years, so uh, keep that in mind. Uh, or going grocery shopping for people when they're sick. Did anybody ever do that for someone during COVID? Uh, yeah, okay. So, I mean, that is a, that's a good deed. So, it, it, what, what are we doing? Well, we are, we are looking at the, the suffering world and the, the plight of humanity without Christ, and, and our hearts are breaking for them because they need, they need help. They are scared. They are angry. They are frustrated. They have all of these negative emotions. Their life is a mess. They don't know which end is up. They don't have hope, and, and we are there to help them, to serve some needs for them. It is, it is stemmed from the, the heart of God who looked at humanity and in rebellion to him with no hope in this world, and God rolled up his sleeves, and he came to earth, and he performed a good work for us. The ultimate good work, of course, is what? The cross. Yeah, that is the ultimate good work. And why did he do it? Because he loved humanity, and he wanted to see their suffering alleviated, uh, if, if not temporally, permanently, and to have fellowship with him, which is what we really needed. And so when we, when we think about good works, really don't want you to be thinking about, well, you know, I should you know, knock on three doors today, or I should pass out 15 tracks, or you know, I have some kind of a quota system so that you can check the box and say, yep, I did my good deeds for the week. You know, no, this is, this is flowing from the heart of God. It is flowing from the love of God. It is just simply seeing people where they're at, seeing the needs they have, and, and trying to meet them. And, and, and in the process, uh, when the opportunities arise, sharing the love of Christ and that, that he is the answer for everything that they need in their life. Uh, so, so love has to be our motivation. We can turn people into ministry projects, and I'm afraid I've been guilty of that in the past, you know, to just going through the motions and, 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 and teaching people and helping people, but doing it just because I'm supposed to, instead of being absolutely overcome with, with love and compassion for people. Like when Jesus looked at the, at the crowds, and, and it says he was moved, he was like kicked in the gut with compassion for them. That is what motivates our good works. It is not about trying to perform quotas or, or make our deacon happy or our elder or our, our pastor happy. It is about just simply being available to the Lord to, to move when, when we see needs. That is where good works stem from. And those are the ones the Lord can use to really help people and reach their hearts. Now, um, I want to look at a letter of Paul's that has a lot to do with uh, uh, people who became confused about faith and works. Anybody know what letter I'm talking about? Romans would be, would be a possibility, but there's one that's even more targeted to the faith and works problem. 
Galatians. There we go. Um, so, if I heard Galatians, that's right. If I didn't hear Galatians, I'm sorry, but it is Galatians. <laughs> uh, so, now, let me tell you first about my experiences as a young believer. So, I saved at 19, and by, you know, I was reading the Bible a lot, I was going to seminars, I was doing all this stuff to, to really gain information and knowledge about my faith, and somewhere along the way, I slipped into the same error that you will find in Galatians. I got confused about uh, faith and works and how they, they blended together. So, um, and, and what happens in Galatians is that people who start out in a relationship with God by faith then try to perfect it through works. And that was pretty much what I did. I, I never rejected salvation by faith, but I somehow got confused about that I needed to maintain my, my uh, salvation with works. You see how, how I got that problem, right? Uh, and, and if you read, just read James and you read nothing else, you might be confused about that yourself. But uh, so at age 20, for about six months, I'm stuck in this, in this trap of, uh, of trying to, uh, to maintain my salvation through works. And I can tell you that I was the most miserable human being that I had ever been in my life. And I had been depressed and suicidal before, but I think I was even more miserable now when I was stuck in legalism. I, I was, there was this constant gnawing dread that I was never going to be good enough. Because it's like, so even if every waking moment you are praying and reading your Bible or ministering, okay, um, that's great. But what if you gave up another hour of sleep? What if you gave up another two hours of sleep? Then you could do more praying, more Bible reading, more ministry. Do you see the problem? There's no, there's no way for you to ever feel like you're good enough. And that is what I was living in for six months. And, um, and it's, it's like being on a treadmill that never stops. You're just running, 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 and you're getting exhausted. And that's the way I was at. Now, I want you to think about that and what I was going through. And now think about this, that everybody you know who's LDS or Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist, that's their reality, that they live every single day. It's never good enough. They can never work hard enough to appease God from their understanding. And so when you, when you think about JWs or LDS or Seventh-day Adventists, our hearts would break for them because they are under a burden that none of us ever want to experience. And they need mercy and grace. They need to know that that is what it takes to have a real relationship with God. So, um, so here I am. I'm, I'm reading all the time, right? And, um, and I even got to where I was reading the Amplified Bible. Anybody read the Amplified Bible? Okay, so a few of you know what it's like. Um, but it's not one that... <laughs> that is really good to quote from. And so 
I hesitate to do that, but this is, this is what I was reading when God set me free. And so I want to be faithful to what, uh, what the Lord used. Um, Amplified Bible is a, is a paraphrase that attempts to give you the, the deeper meaning of the underlying language, the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. And so it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's more better to use it like a, as a reference or something than just your daily Bible. But, hey, if you're stuck in legalism, you know, knock yourself out. Go ahead and read the whole Bible in the Amplified, uh, which is, I guess, what I was doing. But I was in Galatians chapter 3. And, oh, I want to read that um, first of all in uh, uh, NASB. So you can compare the difference here. Verse 19 says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Okay, so that's how it reads in a in, in, you know, very typical translation. So then in the Amplified, though, it reads something like this. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added later on after the promise to disclose and expose to men their guilt because of transgressions and to make men more conscious of the sinfulness of sin. And it was intended to be in effect until the seed should come to and concerning whom the promise had been made. And it, the law, was arranged and ordained and appointed through the instru instrumentality of angels and was given by the hand in the person of a go-between, an intermediary person, Moses, between God and man. Do you see why you don't read this every day, right? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of windy, I guess. Now, a, now, this is the important part here, the next verse. Now, a go-between, an intermediary, has to do with and implies more than one party, more than one person, more than one party. Um, there can be no mediator with just one person. Yet, God is only one person. And he was the sole party in giving that promise to Abraham. But the law was a contract between two, God and Israel. Its validity was dependent upon and that was where God set me free because I realized then my error that I had, that I had bailed out on being the recipient of a promise and I was now trying to be a party to a contract. So it would be like if I, if I told Tom Wells that, uh, Tom, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you $100 if you'll detail my car for me. And he says, okay, I'll do that. And then when he gets done, I go and inspect my car. And if, it's, uh, if it looks um, okay, then I pay him $100. So is that a promise or a contract? That's a contract, okay? But if I, if I tell Tom, Tom, I just want to bless you, brother. And I'm going to give you a $100 check. And... He says, oh, thank you very much. Is that a promise or a contract? That's a promise, okay? 
So, this is very important. Promises and contracts are the two type, the two covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is a promise. The Mosaic covenant is a contract. And believe you me, you don't ever want to try to approach God on the basis of a contract. That is a, that it will not work. And so, it is it is a it is a uh, an oath. It's a promise that we receive for eternal life through our faith in the blood of Christ. And uh, so there's, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's significance here in how we understand these contracts. So, and, I, and, and the mediator, I thought, well, a mediator, I know what a mediator is. They come in and they help parties you know, come to an agreement. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. And so it's like there's this contract here, and it's like, I don't want to deal, deal with that anymore. And... Praise God, I never fell into that error again. But the terror of it has been very useful to help other people understand why you don't want to get involved in legalism. Um, now, but I have, a, I have a question for you. Why do you think that there are so many quasi-Christian groups who are works-based? What is the appeal or the attraction uh, to that approach to salvation? You think about that? It's kind of a deep thought, but somebody, uh, I think Dave in the, in the first service, uh, came up with a good answer. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Most of us have so much pride that we reject the notion of getting handouts. Very few of us would be comfortable going out and, and begging, right? Um, and, and so, workspace salvation offers the allure of being involved in the process where, okay, we'll, we'll even grant, you know, Jesus did 95% of the work, but, ooh, that last 5% to get over the hump, I can pat myself on the back. I've done a good job, and I've done it, right? And so this is why workspace religious systems are so incredibly popular and so attractive to people because they appeal to their pride. People want to feel like they are participating in the process. And, uh, and that's something that God absolutely will not tolerate, even a sniff of it, because of that very problem. It, it puts, when, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished, and he meant it. Like, everything that needed to be done for our salvation was done by him on the cross. We cannot add to it, ever, or we get ourselves into a, a real mess. But Judaizers of old and modern-day Judaizers, uh, like Jehovah's Witness, LDS, Seventh-day Adventist, others, they appeal to the fleshly nature in us and want to sell us a program to where we get to at least do part of the work ourselves. And, uh, and that's where they, where they run afoul of the gospel. Now, Paul, uh, fortunately, spells this out in unmistakable, clear terms in the letter to Galatians in chapter 5. Um, 
So five verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, says, Look, I, Paul, this is Paul speaking to y'all, tell you that if you have yourselves circumcised, Christ will be of some benefit to you. Is that what it says? No. Um, will be of a little benefit to you. Enough, enough benefit to get you saved. Is that what it says? No. How much benefit will it be of, to, to you? None. Will be of no, how are you going to get into heaven if Christ is of no benefit to you? Can't. It's impossible. And that, that is your position you'll, you'll be in if you get yourself circumcised to fulfill religious requirements. We're going to see that. And I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep a little bit of the law. Is that what it says? No. How much? The whole law. All of it. All 600 plus commandments. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, Paul is not using this, you know, the phrase fall from grace, like, you know, people that fall out of favor with um, their business or with their community or something. No, this is, this is like you have, you've left grace behind. You have abandoned grace. You've rejected grace. You've said, I don't need grace. I'm good, God. I can, I can meet you on my own terms. That is what we're doing when we are starting to enter into this blend of grace and works. Because it's got to be 100% grace or it's not going to be any grace at all. When, when it talks about being severed from Christ, look, if I, if I put this page marker down, has that been severed from me? Has it been cut off of me? No, it's no longer associated with me. I'm not holding it anymore, but it's not been severed. But if I take my pocket knife out and put my finger down on this table and saw it in two and place the finger there, has that been severed? Yeah, that's been severed. Exactly. Who said that? That was good. Good answer. Because it was attached to me. So the point is, we can't be severed unless we've been attached first. That's why this passage is very, very serious when you think about that. We do not ever want to be in a position of trying to blend faith and works for salvation. It, it can't happen uh, or we've left grace behind. Now, I've been circumcised. Most of the males in this room have probably been circumcised. We're not talking about the physical act of circumcision. We're talking about, uh, we do that for health reasons. Uh, and, and so, you know, most Western societies have their male child circumcised. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being circumcised to comply with the Mosaic law. Because that's what the Judaizers would say, is that, oh, well, yeah, you've um, you got to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll get, we'll, and I'll grant you that. But, in addition, you also need to adhere to the law of Moses. You need to obey the dietary restrictions. You need to be um, circumcised. You need to worship on the Sabbath. So they would put all the other requirements in there, plus you also believe in the work Jesus did on the cross. And, uh, and so that is the sense in which Paul is talking about circumcision here. He is saying, 
that it is an attempt to fulfill the law. But he says, you can't stop there. If you're going to get circumcised, then you're under an obligation to fulfill every part of the law, all of it. And not just the parts you like, but every bit of it. And of course, that's impossible. That's why we, we, have, um, that's why we have grace. So what was, the other, what was the other major reason for the law in the first place? I didn't cover this in the, in the first service, unfortunately. But, but uh, what, what is the other major purpose for the law? What does it do for us? Pardon me? It shows the need for grace, okay? In Galatians, this tells us specifically that it is our what? Tutor. tutor. Our tutor to lead us to Christ. So it's like God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why you need grace. And so he gives us an anvil, and he says, like, you pound your head against that, because that's what it's like trying to obey the law. It's, it's, it just gives you a major headache. And you're supposed to realize that oh gosh, I can't do this. It's impossible. And it's like, God, I'm undone and I can't do your law and so what other options do I have? Oh, I'm glad you asked because actually I've done the work for you. It's called grace and faith through grace and salvation. So the law was supposed to be a tutor that just simply showed us our need for grace and led us to Christ. And, but he says in Galatians chapter 5 that, that when we've come to that point of grace, then we don't need the tutor anymore. We've arrived. It's done its purpose. So it's, it's no longer there to be, for us to try to fulfill any of it. That's not how we get any of our righteousness. Um, so that is, um, that's really the, the idea here, is that, is that faith saves us. But real faith produces action, just like with Zacchaeus. When, when Jesus saw that he was willing to disperse his goods and to repay people that he'd wronged, then Jesus said, salvation has come today to this household, because he saw action associated with faith. And so when Paul talks about salvation by faith through grace, and James talks about works being the proof of, of faith, there is, there is no discrepancy. There is no tension. They are perfectly welded together in a tapestry that makes our salvation real and effective. And it produces what God wants us to do, which is to be uh, people like himself who look at the suffering world and want to help people. That's, that's really what all of this is about. Now, um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Now, maybe you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, uh, gee, that was a waste of my time because I've, I've known this since I was, you know, six years old, and, and uh, I've always understood the relationship between faith and works, and, and I've never been confused about it, and that's, and that's great, and I, and I hope that's true. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a position to where you, you wanted to pray to God for something, maybe it was a need for a spouse or a family member or uh, a neighbor or maybe even yourself, and yet you had a really bad week that week. 
and maybe you'd been rude and, and angry and upset and, 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 and hadn't read your Bible and hadn't been praying and all these things and, 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 and you're, you've confessed it and you know you've been forgiven, but still you don't feel like you ought to uh, be able to go before God and ask Him for something. Anybody ever been in that position? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. All right. So right then, you are you slipped into a very subtle form of works-based religion because you are putting your obedience between you and your ability to approach God and come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need. You have, and that is exactly what works-based religion is. You should put obedience between you and God. So, what we have to do is be able to recognize that and reject it and say, Lord, I do not come and I will never come to you on the basis of my obedience. I come to you based on the blood of Christ and my faith in that. And I need help right now. And God listens to you. So, just be aware that as we grow as Christians, the, the attacks and the deception become more subtle, but not quite so obvious. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that we can't be deceived if we let our guard down. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.